Last Sunday, we read what has come to be known as the Great Commission from Matthew 28, where Jesus told us to be about the business of making disciples. Today, we look at another one of the greats in the Bible, and that's the Great Commandment. Um, and it's a verse that focuses on the idea of, of, of all the things that God would ask of us. Um, what, what would he prioritize first? What would be at the top of his list? And when Jesus was asked the question of all the 600 plus commands in the Old Testament, um, which one holds the place of priority and importance? Jesus answered this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and following. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Um, as Jesus reflected upon that, and, and there's two or three times that those verses come up in the story of Jesus, um, and each time the emphasis is put in the same place. Uh, first, these words rank highest above all the others. And if you do them, you're going to probably take care of the others pretty easily. Uh, but also he links together, if you're paying attention, really there's two commands there. Um, but he says they're one. They're one commandment, the whole idea of loving God. And when he uses that heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's just talking about all that you are, with all of your energy, all of your being, love God. But how do you do that? Well, Jesus couples that with the second part of this, which is not a second part in Jesus' mind, is to love your neighbor as yourself. That loving God always overflows and is connected with loving people around you. There is no greater commandment than these. And so today we want to ask the question, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Um, and if you think, well, what about the first part? I think you're going to find that you can't do the second one without doing the first. And so they, they kind of are, are a cycle that works together. Um, there's certainly a lot of bad news in the world. And so when I find good news, I always like to latch on to, at least in my own mind, to remind me that the world isn't completely an awful place. Um, but there was a race that took place in, I think, South America someplace. It was a triathlon, which involves swimming long distances and biking long distances and running long distances. Um, and there was a man by the name of James Teagle who uh, was competing in this triathlon, and, and he had been in third place for much of the run. And uh, there, the guy behind him was a guy by the name of Diego Mantriga. Um, and James Teagle was coming, as you're going to see in just a second, he was coming to the finish line. He was, had third place securely in his grasp, but then he makes a, long, a wrong turn at just the last little sprint of things. He misses the turn. Uh, Diego Montriga passes him, and he then has third place firmly in his grasp. And as most things in the world work, um, when someone else's disadvantage works to your advantage, you just count your blessings and think, well, too bad for you, good for me. But uh, Diego Montriga didn't do that. He stops right before the finish line, and I want you to watch what happens here. If this isn't a sign of good sportsmanship, I don't know what is. Spanish triathlete Diego Mantriga noticed that British triathlete James Teagle went the wrong way before the finish line 
of the Santander Triathlon. Intriga waited for him so he could take what he says is deserved third place. So, All right, we'll stop there. But, uh, uh, but it goes on to talk about the story. Time. But his, when asked later why Diego would stop and let his opponent, uh, his competitor, have that third place back, he said it, he simply deserved it. He ran there most of the race. And this is something my parents and my club has taught me since I was a child. My view is that this should be a normal thing to do. But it's not a normal thing. It's not a normal thing to put someone else's interests or uh, a good above our own, especially in the world of competition or business or, or finance or things that, that personally benefit us. Now, the flip side of that from Intriga, uh, the, the race organizers um, recognized what he did, and they went, and get, get, went ahead and gave him a third-place honorary medal plus the $355 uh, award that went with that third place. So it, it worked out well, and everybody wins, and it's a happy Disney story. Um, but it's the idea that it's, uh, but the idea didn't have to happen that way. No one would have blamed him if he would have just crossed the line, patted himself on the back for being third and went on for this day. And everybody would have felt sorry for, uh, for James Teagle, but he didn't do that. He put someone else ahead of himself and the world could use a little bit more of that. Couldn't it? A little more thoughtfulness, a little more consideration, a little more honoring others above self. Um, and so we would describe that as the world could use a little more love. Um, the world of music has certainly uh, uh, caught on to that. It's been asking us and challenging us to, to make the world a loving place for a long time. Um, if I was to sing this title, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. There you go. I don't know if that's a friendship thing or something else, but maybe this is a marriage sermon too, but um, it fits both places. Uh, the Beatles back in the 60s sang a song that became an anthem for that generation and, and, and for others after it, because the mantra continues to be said, all we need is love, right? Um, well, that all sounds good and it's not wrong. We do need more love, but here's the struggle that we've had. We have trouble defining love. We have trouble in our world, in our minds, in our relationships saying, what is love? Um, I think that's uh, another song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I think maybe so. I don't know, but that's, uh, that's another song that we won't go into. Uh, but we have trouble defining what love is. Because uh, I could say, well, love means you let me do whatever I want. That's what my kids think love is. But that's not love, I don't think. Um, and what if what I want competes with what you want? Uh, what's love? Who wins? Somebody has to win. Somebody has to lose there. And so... Our culture defines love in a lot of different ways. Oftentimes as an emotion, our culture tends to think of love as a passion that I feel towards someone or something. And so I, if, I, if I love God, it just means I went to church and I sang a passionate song about God. And, and so I love God and, and it has nothing to do with what I do elsewhere. Uh, but other parts, other cultures uh, have defined love as more of a verb, a, more removed from emotion. Love is just what you do, right? I love my wife or I love God by what I do, regardless of how I feel about it. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of all of that. But we find love confusing. And we know it matters. We want it to be present in our world. We believe that if it was more present, the world would be a better place. But we're kind of left with one more song reference from the 80s, um, I want to know what love is. Um, and <laughs> we'll go on to there. We base a lot of our values and ethics on the assumption that we know what love is, but we struggle when it comes down to personal relationships, up close and personal, what is love? 
And so love becomes very confusing. But the Bible does not leave us, leave us without help. And I'm thankful for that. Don read from us John 3.16. Uh, I also like the coupling of 1 John 3.16, which echoes that verse in a lot of ways when it says this, By this we know, what lo- we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for our brothers and sisters and I want you to note there that frequently, if not all the time, when the Bible brings up this idea of love, it does exactly what the great commandment does. It attaches, okay, you love God. How do we know you love God? You love God, and I know you love God because you love people, right? See what he says? We know that he laid down his life for us, so we lay down our life for others. And so there's that laid down life that the Bible says this is what a picture, a definition of love. It's not a text that, just, that he just says, hey, read this. It's a person that says, look at him. Look at him and, and, and study that, learn that, emulate that. And so we have this model in the person of Jesus. It says, this is what love looks like. But I'm guessing the Lord must be pretty frustrated with us and our ability and un- or unwillingness, either one, or, or ignorance or our unwillingness to show love, to practice love like Jesus did. It's kind of like this video about a man with a wheelbarrow who wasn't using it properly. So take a look at this, if you would. And so uh, if you don't understand that, why that's wrong, come see me. We got some, I got some rocks I need to move at my house or something. We'll figure that out. But how many times would the Lord say, just do this, just love like Jesus loves, and yet we are still carrying around wheelbarrows. We're just not engaged in that uh, because there are barriers that oftentimes keep us from loving like we should. And so God goes beyond, again, a, just a text. Although texts are great, the Bible is great, but he gives us a person to look at and to live from. And so I want to go to John chapter 13. I want to read about the, the first 20 verses or so. I just want to read this account because uh, the first part's mostly familiar to us. It's the washing of the disciples' feet, uh, familiar text. We've looked at that before. But I love the way Jesus then takes that act of service and unpacks it for his disciples because he wants them to, be, to remember, to learn from this experience. John 13, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, uh, again, this is just hours before he's arrested and crucified. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is Jesus showing love um, to his disciples to the very last moment he has an opportunity to do so. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who, had, who said to him, Lord, do, not, do you wash my feet? Which the implied question is, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. But Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. 
And so Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, if that's the case, because you see that Peter loves the Lord a lot, right? He wants Jesus. He wants a share of Jesus in his life, a portion of Jesus in his life. So he says, well, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Just dump the whole bucket on me, Lord, if that's what it takes, if, if this is what it means. But Jesus responded, um, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now understand that, Jesus, that John, as he recorded this text, he brought in two of the, the villains. One's a bigger villain than the other. But two of the guys that are setting up this experience to be a, a painful thing for Jesus. There's Judas, um, who, beautifully enough, sits at this table and the implication is that Jesus has washed the feet of the one who would betray him. So when we ask, well, what is love? Love isn't some sentimental thing that I feel good about you. Love is a decision at some level to treat people better than they deserve. But you also find Peter here. Jesus in just a few verses is going to tell Peter that, that you're going to deny me. And yet, again, at the same table, Jesus has washed the feet of the one who will soon deny him three times. And so see the beauty of that as you think about what does love mean? What does love look like? Love certainly has the implication that it's more than just um, ooey-gooey feelings about yourself or about, your, about someone that you are looking at. It's choosing to treat someone in a better way than they probably deserve. And so in verse 12, he goes on to say this, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? It's an important question. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled that he who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. Again, another reference there to the idea of Judas turning his back on Jesus, um, uh, just his betrayal. I'm telling you this now, though, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. To help us understand love, God gave us a person. And that person is Jesus. And Jesus demonstrated love clearly for us. Jesus says that, uh, John says, excuse me, that Jesus loved his people, his disciples, his neighbors in this context to the very end. And so we have to ask the question, then, what does love look like according to Jesus? Well, again, Jesus demonstrated love clearly. Jesus washes their feet. And then in verse, verse 12 of the text, he asks them, do you understand what's going on here? And they don't. They don't have the full picture yet. But they will soon. 
they're going to see on the other side of the cross um, the bigger picture. But in this moment, they're just taken aback. They're kind of disgusted. They're bothered by the fact that Jesus would do this because foot washing was a, a low and demeaning thing to do. Nobody wanted to do that. Um, uh, our grandson was at our house and he likes to poop a lot. Um, I think he gets that from his mom's side, but uh, he likes to poop a lot. And, and I, didn't, I didn't change a diaper the whole time because changing diapers, I just was reminded of this weekend, is the disgusting work. And so those of you who are in that phase, Lord bless you. All right, just, uh, I just it'll, hopefully it'll end eventually. Um, but it's just disgusting work. And, and I found myself whenever that happened, just either pretending I didn't hear or walking to the other room, mowing the yards, re-roofing the house, repaving the driveway, anything to avoid doing that. And foot washing would be in that category. No one wanted to be the foot washer, but Jesus does it. And Jesus does it on purpose because in verse 13, he, he wants them to see that you call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's who I am. I am this person who has this elevated position. But in verse 14, if I then will leave that elevated position, giving up my rights, dignity, comforts, and stoop and step down into the role of a servant, and if I have washed your feet, then what should you do for each other? You should do the exact same thing. You should never be found saying, oh, that's beneath me. I would never, that's not my gift, all right? Changing diapers isn't my gift. I should have done that. I, I feel guilty a little for that. But, uh, but in verse 14, if you do this, you all, if I do this, Jesus says, you also ought to do this. Verse 15, you have no reason not to serve one another because I did this for you. And so Jesus puts himself as the center, the focus, and says, watching me is how you're going to choose to respond to each other. Verse 16, if I'm willing to do something as menial as this, then surely you as my followers have no right to think this is beneath you. We can't turn up our noses at it because Jesus is, love is willing to stoop if that's what serving and loving someone involves. You see, love is willing to lower oneself for the sake of the needs of another, to put others ahead of yourself to do the demeaning and low thing for the good of another, even for someone who doesn't owe you anything. And in this context, even for people who are never going to deserve what you're doing to do for them. And so we want this kind of love. We love stories of this kind of love. We hunger for it. We're drawn to it in a lot of ways. And we find it compelling when someone uses that position to serve others. I just saw a story this week about a, a man by the name of Charles or Chuck Feeney who is now 89 years old. Um, he was back in the 60s, uh, the co-founder of those duty-free stores that you see in the airport. And apparently, I've never bought anything in the duty-free store, but apparently somebody has because he amassed a wealth of $8 billion in that industry. And, um, and so became a very, very wealthy man. But he decided to handle his wealth differently, according to this article in Forbes magazine. Um, he decided that instead of waiting till he died and then just putting all of that money in some trust fund that would just continue to feed into things, he decided to give it away before he died. And on September 20th, he gave the last donation and now he's broke. 
Um, it did say in the article he went from, he did put a couple of million aside just for his retirement for the next few years. So from 8 billion to 2 million, that's a huge step. So I'll give him props for that, but, but he's not slumming it like most of us are. So, um, but, uh, but less cars involved. But the fact that he did this though, he did it anonymously. He did it through charitable foundations and all kinds of things because he wanted to be alive to see where all of his money would go through colleges or foundations or charities that he could help. And, and so over the course of 40 years, he got rid of his entire $8 billion wealth. And now is down to not much, relatively speaking. And I was drawn to that because I thought that's cool. That's not the story oftentimes that we read. Oftentimes we just read about the stories of how it's good for us to want more and more and more and never be content. And yet here's a person who's choose, chosen intentionally to say, I'm giving it all away and I'm gonna live very differently than I could live and so that's a little bit of that model of what Jesus is talking about, of I have power, I have position, I have whatever wealth, and, and I will love other people by giving that away so that it does them good. Um, I listened to a thing this week by a, a pastor named St. Alberry, who, who simply said this, when you read stories of others meeting the needs of others, it just feels right. Putting the needs of others before you, your own, it draws us in. It captures our attention. And we've watched this year as many people have gone out of their way to help others, whether it's in the medical field, the education field, all kinds of ways that people have helped others. And we need this now. Imagine a home characterized by that kind of love. We don't have to argue about who does the cleanup or small tasks. The husband changes the diaper. Grandpa changes the diaper. We don't have to argue about that because that's the loving thing to do. Imagine communities or cultures shaped by this kind of love, all putting others' needs ahead of their own. We long for that. We need that. And Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these truths, that this is what Jesus does, and this is what you should do if you love Jesus, he says you are blessed. There is a blessing in that if you choose to do them. And so why can't we get to this? Why are so many of our relationships in the world characterized not by this kind of love? Why is that the exception, not the rule? Well, I think it's because there's this barrier and the barrier is not out there so much as it is in here. You see, Jesus disciples us lastly in love by doing to us what he longs for us to do to others. And so what Jesus is doing in this chapter is he is discipling his disciples, his students. He is training them by not just telling them, go and love people or love one another, but he does to them what he hopes they will in turn do to one another. And so he disciples them in that way. You see, Jesus didn't just want you to go and find an ethical principle, a good example to copy. Jesus wanted them to feel it, to say, this is what love not only looks like, this is what love feels like, as they could feel his hands on their, on their feet and the water and the words and the, 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 the shock, the, the uncomfortableness of that moment. He is trying to disciple them in love by doing to them what he hopes they will in turn do to one another. And so Jesus takes this particular group of people, not the general society, but this group of people, and he pours his love and his care and his generosity upon them. 
And he says, this group of people who have been touched by my love should be characterized by this kind of love. In verse 12, again, when he asks the question, do you understand what I have done? And note what he says to you. Jesus is doing something to them that is deep and it goes to their soul. And they can always remember that moment because it was experiential. And so many times we are good at saying, oh, I love people or I love the Lord. But, but people should be able to say, well, that love has done something to me in a good way. Right? There's an, an experiential part of that. And so this key thought, that also from that article from before, the people Jesus is calling to show this kind of love to are those who received it from him. And so there's this receiving thing that happens before there is this ask to give. So oftentimes we, we read the great commandments, um, love the Lord your God um, with all that you are, your heart, soul, mind, strength, love God. And then go love people. And that we just view that as an outpour. But that also needs to imply in a filling, an experience where we, we, we love God and, and God loves us. Um, God loves into our life. Um, and so God calls us who have been touched by God's love to in turn pour that into the lives of someone else that we know. But the barrier comes because there are so many stresses and strains on all of us. The last few months have shown that, right? There's probably been a lot of anxiety, anger, frustration, so many things inside of us. If I would have said to you back in 2019, 10 years ago, um, that, hey, in next year, you're going to have like a three-month break and you're really going to have time to do whatever you want to do, um, some of us probably would have thought, oh man, think of the songs I could compose or think of the poetry I would write or think of the projects I would get done or think of the things I will be able to do if I just had that time. Think of the things I could do for the, for the good of, of humanity. Um, but here we are a year later. Uh, there were no songs written. There was no poetry written. But there were some harsh words spoken to each other because I was frustrated with other people in the same house and cooped up. And, but that frustration with them really reflected the frustration about myself. It really showed what was going on inside of me. And I'll bet maybe you would experience some of the same things. That we are confronted with ourselves in times of stress or times when things don't go the way that we hoped they would or that we lose control of what we think life should be. We are confronted with ourselves, and as Alibari says, we can grow sick of ourselves. And that's an unpleasant feeling for all of us. Because I am the one who keeps getting in the way of the good that God wants to do in this world. And it's not just me. It's probably all of us stand in the way of the good that God wants to do. You see, we can wash our hands all we want, but it is hard to change our hearts. And so we want to be less irritable and more patient. We want to be less selfish and more generous. We want to be more like Jesus here in John 13. It's a beautiful picture, right? Who wouldn't want to be like that until I have to choose to take off the garment and put on the towel and the basin and begin to be face or nose to toe with these stinky feet. I don't want to do that all of a sudden. That's not a pleasant place to be because love costs and love is hard sometimes. And love 
sometimes feel like you're getting the short end of the stick, sometimes. And so in order to love like Jesus, the beauty of the scene is that we need to be loved like Jesus loved them. You see, these disciples were able to get up from that room and they could go to a world that would hate them oftentimes, that would reject their message, they would do terrible things to them. But why did they keep going? I wonder if they didn't ever think back to the humility of the one who loved them so well. You see, what drove them wasn't a, a dry, empty command, go and do these things. It was a heart filled with love that they had been loved well by God. And because Jesus had loved them so well on their hard days, it was okay because Jesus still loves me. And on the good days, oh, look, Jesus, we get to share in the good things you're doing. You see, because they had allowed and been in an environment where Jesus loved their soul, they had much to give to their neighbor. They could love, they could share, they could give of themselves because they had been filled on the inside. And so the invitation here, I guess, is for us to stop and to think, um, am I all about go, go, go for Jesus? Or am I allowing my soul to stop and to be in places where I rest and I allow God to love me and you allow God to love you. You allow Jesus to love your soul right where it is. You see, the cross was the next step. And so washing feet was one low step that Jesus took to love them, but that wasn't the lowest step he took. The cross was where he took on all of our dirt, all of the lack of love, all of their and our irritability, our selfishness, and he died on a cross as if it were his own so that we might then in turn begin to grow in his love. Imagine all of his patience and his generosity and all that servanthood and all that kindness. We can have that in our life. That can be ours. I don't think it comes just because we see a good example of Jesus and we work really hard to copy it. That's not, this isn't about, oh, go copy what Jesus did because you will fail at that every time and you will be broken, you'll be empty, you'll be frustrated. But when you're at the end of yourself and exhausted and tired of yourself, Jesus doesn't call you to copy him. He calls you to come to him. Don read it for you earlier, Matthew 11 Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. And it's in that rest that Jesus loves our souls, where we're broken and we're tired and we're frustrated and we're angry, whatever it may be, that God begins to love our soul. And as he loves us over time, those fruit begin to grow naturally, not forced from the outside, but naturally from the inside out. And so the more I am loved by Jesus, the more low, the more sacrifice, the, the more I can give for the Lord, but not out of guilt or a pressure, but out of love for him. Because I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I can love my neighbor and do so with joy and with peace and with happiness. I would just take you back to the first words of this text. I love the perspective, and I love that John, before he tells us that Jesus got up, he could have just started in verse 4, right? Chapter 13, 
Verse 1, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He gets up and washes their feet. Cool thing. But I love the way that he takes us inside the heart and the mind of Jesus when he says that when Jesus knew that his hour had come, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. The devil had already put in the place of Judas to betray him. But in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. All right, there's just pictures of Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he stood with the Lord. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. And he just knew his place apart from anything he did. And because he knew where he stood with God and that he was good with God and that God held his life and that's where his heart rested, he was able to just give and, and sacrifice and humble himself to the, to the nth degree. And so many times we're trying to prove ourselves and we need things from other people that we're not willing to go that low because our hearts are empty. And so before we go and we serve like Jesus, may we spend the time daily, weekly, moment by moment, allowing God to love our hearts, to speak truth and love and grace into our brokenness and our hurts and our wounds. And may in doing that, may he fill within us a well that overflows into life, into love, that touches the lives of people around us as Jesus models for us here. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that in moments in my life and in our lives when uh, maybe we're at our most frustrating, worst places, that we're not met with this harsh hand of, uh, of rebuke, but we're just met with these open arms and these open hands of grace, of truth, and love. Father, how beautiful it is to picture those men as they sat in that circle. Not a one of them deserved for the master to wash their feet. And so there's comfort in that because not a one of us deserves a thing from you. Yet because of grace, Jesus served those he loved. And so, Father, that's where we're at in a place of needing your grace today. I need it. Every person in this room needs that grace. And it's as we find that grace that comforts our hearts and forgives our sins and grows new fruit within us that we're able to love better in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community. We just have this depth of soul that comes because we've been loved well. Father, help us not to rush ahead to the doing before we stop and allow our souls to be cared for, to be loved on, to be served. So Father, in the quietness of these next few moments, just allow us to, uh, to love you and to hear you and to know you and to know that we are loved by you. And we pray these things in Christ's good name. Amen.